Welcome to the Kefetris Connected Care Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Knight, and I'm Content Marketing Manager at Kefetris. Our guest today is Angie Aurora. Angie is a social worker, well-being coach, and certified compassion fatigue specialist specializing in veterinary well-being, end-of-life, and pet loss support and equity issues in veterinary medicine. A professor at Seneca College's School of Community Services, Angie has presented at leading conferences here in the U.S. and internationally, too. This includes Fetch DVM 360, International Veterinary Social Work Summit, MCVMA RISE, and the UK Vet Congress, where she advocates for a trauma-informed approach to veterinary well-being. She works with veterinary hospitals and is actively involved with many veterinary organizations and initiatives, including the Toronto Zoo, Blend Vet, and the Canadian Collective for Equity in Veterinary Medicine. Angie, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. To start, tell listeners how you became so passionate about veterinary well-being. So my journey started back in 2004, and it was when I was finishing up my master's of social work. And that very same year, my animal companion, Monty, of more than 18 years, uh, passed away around the same time that I was finishing my master's. But just like most things in life, experiences collide, and I had a bit of this light bulb moment where I'm now trained as a social worker, I'm seeing a really big gap in the type of support that's available for others. And that really started off my journey. So I started off doing a lot of pet loss counseling and pet loss support. That ended me up in an animal hospital in 2008, working as a veterinary social worker. And there's a lot of things that I know now that I didn't know then. And one of them was that I was not ready for the hospital environment. And so myself, as a social worker, ended up experiencing some pretty deep compassion fatigue about a year to a year and a half into my first role. And I share this as part of my journey and my story really openly. But on my very last day of work, which I had no idea was going to be my last day, got off a call with a client and I ended up suffering from a massive seizure at my desk. And, you know, here in Canada, that led to my license being revoked. I wasn't able to travel to work. It was a really hard time, but also a really eye-opening and beautiful experience, one that I would never change because what it allowed me to see... Angie, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Well, what the experience allowed me to see was that what I was experiencing, even as a social worker somebody who should be trained on how to deal with this. Even I wasn't immune to it. And so that really started off my journey on wanting to explore what did burnout mean? What did compassion fatigue mean? What did secondary traumatic stress mean in veterinary medicine? And so ever since 2008, that really has become my mission in figuring out ways to better improve the mental health and well-being of veterinary professionals specifically, but also the team culture and the whole entire practice environment. Because if there's one thing I've learned, it's that things like compassion fatigue are highly responsive to change. There are tools, there are frameworks, there are responses. But I think the profession as a whole, it's taken a while to fully be able to grasp and understand what the mental health and well-being issues are. And now we're sort of at this cusp of the transformation of like, okay, what do we do with this? We know the problems exist, but how do we actually solve them? 
and it's a really exciting time to be part of the profession. It really is. And I'm so sorry about Monty. And I'm so sorry about your experience. Thank you for sharing such a personal and powerful story. Yeah, thank you. You touched on something and let's dig into it a little bit more. We've all seen really disturbing headlines about mental health in the veterinary community. Given your expertise, what can you tell us today about the state of mental health? What are the vulnerabilities? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think the vulnerabilities, quite frankly, begin even before folks enter the profession. We're all human beings with our own social identities, our lived experiences. And so many of us all around the world are bringing our unresolved stress and trauma into the workplace. And I think we can see how that starts to manifest really even just from, you know, for people that are trying to get into vet school the competition that's involved even prior to getting in, what that does to our state of wellness, the pressures once folks are in school, and the lack of systemic care that's provided to students, it kind of all just starts to set the tone for the type of culture that folks inevitably or many times end up working in. And then, of course, once you're in the profession, the the layers are so nuanced. And I think anyone you talk to will say it's not one cause. The pieces that I'd like to focus on are twofold. At an organizational level, we have hospitals that are really doing the best they can under the current circumstances, but don't necessarily know how to adequately support professionals who are in a really high-stress environment and an environment that is highly exposed to trauma. And that's the piece here that, you know, if we think about the work of veterinary professionals, it's a pretty interesting experience to have where you have two clients, you have your animal patients, and you also have your human clients. And in a lot of the folks that I've spoken with, while there is stress that arises from things that happen to animals, from what I hear is most of the stress and the unresolved trauma comes from the interactions with the humans. And I think that speaks a lot to the lack of preparation. You know, someone like me who's a social worker, my entire training was on how to work effectively with human beings. So I can't take that for granted. I understand that my training base is really different than veterinary professionals whose training is almost solely focused on working with the animal. And so I think what happens is folks end up in environments where Either the organization or the individual, and usually a combination thereof, don't have the coping mechanisms on how to deal with the impacts of that exposure to stress and trauma. And what we often see within the profession is this high degree of numbing and avoidance when the pain gets to be too high, and I don't necessarily know how to process it. And one could argue that some of these stressors, you know, every every profession, every workplace has its stressors, but The nuances here of the high rate of exposure to trauma is something that I think we haven't given enough attention uh, because when we look at a lot of the coping mechanisms and the way that people are holding their pain quite invisibly and the coping responses that come from that all speak to trauma responses, right? So the high degree of need for perfectionism, the need to sort of, you know, have to be able to control the outcome of scenarios, the withdrawing and the numbing, 
the not even knowing how to feel my emotions. It's this culmination um, of both practices not knowing how to support their team members and then team members not having the individual tools on how to process what they're exposed to. That's so interesting and such a good point. I didn't think about the fact that so much training goes into how to care for pet patients, but there's this whole element of also your client interactions that folks maybe aren't prepared enough for, to your point. Yeah. Staying on this, I'm thinking also about the impact on veterinary communities of color. Are they facing similar psychological challenges in the workplace or different ones? What does that look like today? Yeah, I think we can even broaden it out to really any community that has experienced discrimination, oppression, and often doesn't see themselves represented within their profession. We know, we know that veterinary medicine is, is making a lot of progressive change and movement in a, a positive direction. But when we look at the reality, I mean, we still know that veterinary medicine is one of the least racially diverse uh, professions in North America. There's a high degree of connection between that and mental health and well-being. And so just as an example, what starts to happen for folks when they don't see themselves adequately represented in their profession is it deeply impacts the extent to which I feel I belong. And the representation is really only one kind of surface level um, part of this. But when we dig deeper, we have enough anecdotal information to know that microaggressions are real. We know that overt discrimination is real. Overt racism is real in the profession. There's also a high degree of systemic barriers um, that many marginalized communities face, not only in just feeling like, you know, where do I belong, but even moving into higher positions of power. And taking that down to a more micro level, more and more research now has come out to show the correlation between experiencing discrimination and our overall mental health and physical well-being. For example, our nervous systems, right? We have to talk about our nervous system health when we're talking about mental health and well-being. And we're now really starting to better understand that for folks who either don't feel like they belong, don't see themselves represented, have a continuous journey of having to explain their identities, hide their identities, experiences of the microaggressions, what that often leads to is showing up to work in this state of hypervigilance. It's almost like my nervous system is on guard. What's the next potential threat? And for folks who haven't had to experience this, that may not make a whole lot of sense, except when you've lived it, you know what I'm talking about. You kind of learn to maneuver the world with this extra guarded armor. And we're often not doing it consciously. It's happening very subconsciously through our nervous systems. Like, for example, I may walk into a place and I'm quickly scanning the room. Is there anyone here that looks like me? And we're doing this out without even thinking about it. And when the answer is no, things start to happen inside of me where I now have to adjust how I'm showing up. Do I start to change the tone of the way I'm speaking? Do I have to leave parts of who I am at the door because it doesn't feel safe to be able to show up as my true and authentic self? That can come down to things like my name, 
right? I've heard of folks saying that their names have gotten shorter, shortened by other people, or straight up changed by colleagues because others can't pronounce their name. I've heard people say that I have to change the way that I dress, the way I do my hair in order to feel like I fit in and belong. And the examples are really endless. And that's all of what's happening internally. It's not even factoring what what the actual interactions are of where racist things may be said to me, sometimes guised in a microaggression, but the impacts nonetheless are quite deep. So I think what this is showing us, and this is only looking at race as an example, we know when it comes to ableism, heterosexism, uh, all the different forms of oppression, people's experiences are quite nuanced. The one piece that does give me some hope is we're finally starting to have these conversations. There is still a lot of pushback from some segments of the profession, but nonetheless, we're seeing the rise of more advocacy groups. We're seeing the rise of more groups understanding the nuanced experiences of people of color and other marginalized groups. And I think we're kind of at a point now where people are saying we're not going backwards. We're going to keep doing the work, um, just like every other profession in the world, where we need to be focusing on equity and inclusion. And I'm just thinking, too, about what you said in terms of carrying that with you as an individual on top of the stress and high volume and staff turnover and all the other issues that we're seeing now in animal hospitals and practices. It would just seem like a really heavy burden. And I would imagine factor into burnout and folks leaving the profession in your experience? The first piece I'd like to touch on, the piece on burnout, and I think that's a really um, important connection because if we look at some of the root causes of burnout, many of us often think of workload as the first cause of burnout. And while that is one, there are other things that contribute to burnout. Like one, for example, being a lack of fairness within my workplace. And so when we start to better understand the root causes of burnout, I think what becomes really important is that we're constantly looking at these frames of burnout and compassion fatigue with an equitable and inclusive lens. And that historically, in my opinion, has not been happening within veterinary medicine. If we look at a lot of the mainstream wellness and well-being initiatives that are out there, while that's great that we're starting to see that come to the forefront, what's often missing is a true deep understanding of how mental health is impacted differently for different groups. So understanding the connection between discrimination, oppression, and burnout has to really become integral to any type of mental health and wellness initiative that we're implementing within VetMed. Otherwise, inevitably, we're leaving out the experiences of whole groups. Mm-hmm. 1,000%. What does psychological health and safety mean? And why is it so important for veterinary practices to consider? So when we're thinking about psychological health and safety, I think there's a lot of um, confusion around what the terminology means. And part of the confusion also lies in Technically, psychological safety and psychological health and safety, while connected, are not the same thing. 
So I'm actually going to start with the psychological safety first. And this is a concept I think that more people are now beginning to understand, which is essentially, can I show up at work feeling safe to be my true full self? Is it safe to make mistakes without the fear of being punished or reprimanded or shamed or embarrassed? Is it safe to show up and share my ideas without the fear of them being pushed down? And so I think we're getting a better understanding of what psychological safety means. And I think most people would agree that's an integral part of feeling good at work. We know that's an issue within vet med as it is with many other professions. But if we take that one component, that one component is part of this larger frame called psychological health and safety. Generally speaking, what it means is that a workplace recognizes that it has a responsibility to promote the well-being of its employees. And more specifically, depending on where you go to for your definition, generally, if you want to break that down even further, as an employer, I have a responsibility to understand that I need to be able to prevent reckless intentional harm to my employees, their psychological harm, like their psychological well-being, their emotional well-being, and of course, their physical well-being as well. But it also means that should harm occur, we have processes in place to be able to remedy and address that harm. So if you kind of step back for a moment, what we see is that the frame of psychological health and safety very much rests as a responsibility of the employer coupled with an individual responsibility to also take care of myself. Sometimes we end up in this push and pull, like whose responsibility is it to protect mental health and well-being? And I'm a fierce advocate that it needs to be the employer and the individual. I need my employer, my hospital, to be able to do the things to prevent and address harm to my mental health and wellness. But as a person, I also have to take responsibility for caring for my own well-being. And when we start to have those two playing out in tandem, that's where I think we can really start to see a lot of progressive change. I agree. As you've noted here, the work environment at veterinary practices can be stressful. Given your training and expertise, and listeners should know that you teach a class at Seneca College on acute self-care for veterinary professionals and offer therapeutic coaching and training for veterinary practices. So are there meaningful and doable steps to make the environment more healthy for everyone? Yeah, it's a great question. So If we think about this from an organizational level, the frame of psychological health and safety is not just an idea, but rather, depending on which resources you go to, you can actually find really concrete resources on how to create um, a workplace that is more psychologically healthy and safe. As an example, the one that I often use in my practice is the Mental Health Commission of Canada's National Standards on Psychological Health and Safety. And they break it down into 13 protective factors that every employer needs to consider. So just to give you some examples, how do we start to create more what they call civility and respect within our organization? How do we promote greater engagement? 
How do we ensure that staff members and employees feel valued and recognized? Right. And so you can kind of see where this is going. They're all, when you look at them, it's, it's quite basic and common sense. Like, of course I should feel valued. Of course I should feel recognized. Of course you should be protecting my physical safety. Of course there should be parameters here that in, in, in the event that my workplace inevitably causes psychological harm, that there's some sort of a remedy. The, the concepts are quite obvious, but yet in practice, it can be quite difficult to implement because we have so many moving parts within any organization, including a hospital. And so part of this does involve, in my opinion, a high degree of awareness and education of just even understanding what psychological health and safety means. That needs to happen at a leadership level, right? As well as trickling down into as an employee, understanding what this means. Once I understand it, then I need to ask myself, do I buy into this? As an employer, do I believe I have a responsibility to be creating safer environments. And I think traditionally, when we think of safety in the workplace, we often think of physical safety, right? And that's where VetMed included has done a much better job. We have many more policies and practices in place to address physical safety issues that may happen for employees, especially given the range of physical hazards that exist in a hospital. And so we know that the buy-in is there. Right now, we're kind of still in this place of creating buy-in for an employer to recognize um, that psychological health and safety also matters. So when you go to resources like the Mental Health Commission of Canada as one example, people have already done the legwork for implementation plans. Veterinary practices may benefit from bringing in a third-party neutral consultant who can do a little bit of an environmental scan because in most organizations we're excelling in certain areas and struggling in others. We want to continue to celebrate the areas we're doing well and really drive our attention to those areas needing work. In my experience, where I believe some of the common struggles are, are when there's a high degree of exposure to stress and trauma Do we have different practices in place that allow staff members to actually process the impacts of that, right? So for example, we have a euthanasia that's gone wrong. We've had a client who's been really overly aggressive with staff members. With those examples, what do we usually do? We have to suck it up. We go into the next appointment and then the next and the next. And then those micro experiences build up And my system gets overloaded, but I often don't recognize that my system is getting overloaded and I go home and I crash. Those are opportunities for us to do things differently. So something like, and this is what I do with some of the practices that I work with, can we set up regular non-technical debriefing rounds so that there are opportunities for people to talk about what that experience actually did? And this is inviting a new way of communicating into hospitals where historically talking about feelings and emotions and experiences is left at the door. But if we are truly committed to improving the mental health and well-being of our people, we cannot ignore emotions and feelings from our conversations. In fact, it's integral. And I don't know how you can possibly move forward when it comes to improving mental health and well-being within your workplace, unless we do have strategies and processes in place to give people a voice. Because in my experience, people are ready to talk. People are ready to share. But if they don't feel safe to do it at work, 
then what starts to happen is they internalize it and they suppress it and they push it down. And then we start to see the pattern behaviors um, that we currently do see. And just to note here, if someone is struggling, please reach out to a medical practitioner immediately or in the U.S. You can call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 988. You mentioned some resources, but where do you suggest veterinary professionals start if they're searching for mental well-being resources for themselves or for their team? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's going to depend on obviously what resources are available in your community. One of the positive resources that I think we now have at our disposal are people like veterinary social workers. And particularly in the United States, we are seeing more and more um, social workers entering into the veterinary space. And this is an important resource. And so one place that I would suggest if you don't know if there is a veterinary social worker in your neighborhood or in your area, reaching out even to an organization like the International Association of Veterinary Social Work can be an important place to start. And of course, you know, what I hear from folks is I can reach out to any mental health professional, but many of those mental health professionals don't understand our profession. And I think that's where veterinary social workers can play a really important role in this, in this puzzle. We're starting to see more veterinary hospitals integrate and embed veterinary social workers directly into their hospital settings. In my opinion, that's probably the strong one of the strongest things that an organization can do to really kind of walk the walk the talk. You know, we're committed to mental health and wellness of our employees. And the way that we're showing that to you is by embedding that support directly in. And it can do wonders to allowing staff to have someone to go and talk to in real time as things are happening, as opposed to having to wait, you know, every couple of weeks to see a therapist, although that is also another important option. And we are also starting to see more veterinary social workers do private practice therapy as well. And so I think going that route can be a really helpful way to bridge the gap between getting support and getting support from somebody who understands the profession. Angie, this has been such a timely and important conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me and thanks for making space for this important conversation.